Section six of the Seven Follies of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Follies of Science by John Finn. Section six. Perpetual Motion. It is probable that more time, effort, and money have been wasted in the search for a perpetual motion machine than have been devoted to attempts to square the circle or even to find the philosopher's stone. And while it has been claimed in favor of this delusion that the pursuit of it has given rise to valuable discoveries in mechanics and physics, some even going so far as to urge that we owe the discovery of the great law of conservation of energy to the suggestions made by the perpetual motion seekers, we certainly have no evidence to show anything of the kind. Perpetual motion was declared to be an impossibility upon purely mechanical and mathematical grounds long before the law of the conservation of energy was thought of, and it is very certain that this delusion had no place in the thoughts of Rumford, Black, Davy, Young, Joel, Grove, and others when they devoted their attention to the laws governing the transformation of energy those who pursued such a will-o'-the-wisp were not the men to point the way to any scientific discovery the search for a perpetual motion machine seems to be of comparatively modern origin we have no record of the labors of ancient inventors in this direction but this may be as much because the records have been lost as because attempts were never made the works of a mechanical inventor rarely attracted much attention in ancient times, while the mathematical problems were regarded as amongst the highest branches of philosophy, and the search for the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life appealed alike to priest and layman. We have records of attempts made 4,000 years ago to square the circle, and the history of the philosopher's stone is lost in the midst of antiquity, but it is not until the 11th or 12th century that we find any reference to perpetual motion, and it was not until the close of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century that this problem found a prominent place in the writings of the day by perpetual motion is meant a machine which without assistance from any external source except gravity shall continue to go on moving until the parts of which it is made are worn out some insist that in order to be properly entitled to the name of a perpetual motion machine it must evolve more power than that which is merely required to run it and it is true that almost all those who have attempted to solve this problem have avowed this to be their object many going so far as to claim for their contrivances the ability to supply unlimited power at no cost whatever except the interest on a small investment and the trifling amount of oil required for lubrication but it is evident that such a machine which would of itself maintain a regular and constant motion would be of great value even if it did nothing more than move itself and this seems to have been the idea upon which those men worked who had in view the supposed reward offered for such an invention as a means of finding the longitude and it is well known that it was the hope of attaining such a reward that spurred on very many of those who devoted their time and substance to the subject.
there are several legitimate and successful methods of obtaining a practically perpetual motion provided we are allowed to call to our aid some one of the various natural sources of power for example there are numerous mountain streams which have never been known to fail and which by means of the simplest kind of a water-wheel would give constant motion to any light machinery even the wind the emblem of fickleness and inconstancy may be harnessed so that it will furnish power and it does not require very much mechanical ingenuity to provide means whereby the surplus power of a strong gale may be stored up and kept in reserve for a time of calm indeed this has frequently been done by the raising of weights the winding up of springs the pumping of water into storage reservoirs and other simple contrivances the variations which are constantly occurring in the temperature and the pressure of the atmosphere have also been forced into this service a clock which required no winding was exhibited in london towards the latter part of the eighteenth century it was called a perpetual motion and the working power was derived from variations in the quantity and consequently in the weight of the mercury which was forced up into a glass tube closed at the upper end and having the lower end immersed in a cistern of mercury after the manner of a barometer it was fully described by james ferguson whose lectures on mechanics and natural philosophy were edited by sir david brewster it ran for years without requiring winding and is said to have kept very good time a similar contrivance was employed in a clock which was possessed by the academy of painting in paris it is described in ozanam's work volume two page one hundred five in the edition of eighteen o three the changes which are constantly taking place in the temperature of all bodies and the expansion and contraction which these variations produce afford a very efficient power for clocks and small machines professor w w r ball tells us that quote, there was at paris in the latter half of the last century a clock which was an ingenious illustration of such perpetual motion the energy which was stored up in it to maintain the motion of the pendulum was provided by the expansion of a silver rod this expansion was caused by the daily rise of temperature and by means of a train of levers it wound up the clock there was a disconnecting apparatus so that the contraction due to the fall of temperature produced no effect and there was a similar arrangement to prevent overwinding i believe that a rise of eight or nine degrees fahrenheit was sufficient to wind up the clock for twenty-four hours another indirect method of winding the clock is thus described by professor ball quote, i have in my possession a watch known as the lower patent which produces the same effect by somewhat different means inside the case is a steel weight and if the watch is carried in a pocket this weight rises and falls at every step one takes somewhat after the manner of a pedometer the weight is moved up by the action of the person who has it in his pocket and in falling the weight winds up the spring of the watch on the face is a small dial showing the number of hours for which the watch is wound up as soon as the hand of this dial points to fifty-six hours the train of lever which wind up the watch disconnects automatically so as to prevent overwinding the spring 
and it reconnects again as soon as the watch has run down eight hours. The watch is an excellent timekeeper, and a walk of about a couple of miles is sufficient to wind it up for twenty-four hours. End quote. Dr. Hooper, in his Rational Recreations, has described a method of driving a clock by the motion of the tides, and it would not be difficult to contrive a very simple arrangement which would obtain from that source much more power than is required for that purpose. Indeed, the probability is that many persons now living will see the time when all our railroads, factories, and lighting plants will be operated by the tides of the ocean. It is only a question of return for capital, and it is well known that that has been falling steadily for years. When the interest on investments falls to a point sufficiently low, the tides will be harnessed, and the greater part of the heat, light, and power that we require will be obtained from the immense amount of energy that now goes to waste along our coasts. Another contrivance by which a seemingly perpetual motion may be obtained is the dry pile or column of De Luc. The pile consists of a series of gilt and silvered paper placed back to back and alternating, all the gilt sides facing one way and all the silver sides the other. The so-called gilding is really Dutch metal or copper and the silver is tin or zinc so that the two actually form a voltaic couple. Sometimes the paper is slightly moistened with a weak solution of molasses to ensure a certain degree of dampness. This increases the action, for if the paper be artificially dried and kept in a perfectly dry atmosphere, the apparatus will not work. A pair of these piles, each containing two or three thousand discs the size of a quarter of a dollar, may be arranged side by side, vertically, and two or three inches apart. At the lower ends they are connected by a brass plate, and the upper ends are each surmounted by a small metal bell, and between these bells a gilt ball, suspended by a silk thread, keeps vibrating perpetually. Many years ago I made a pair of these columns which kept a ball in motion for nearly two years, and Professor Silliman tells us that, quote, a set of these bells rang in Yale College Laboratory for six or eight years unceasingly. Unquote. How much longer the columns would have continued to furnish energy sufficient to cause the balls to vibrate, it might be difficult to determine. The amount of energy required is exceedingly small, but since the columns are really nothing but a voltaic pile, it is very evident that after a time they would become exhausted. Such a pair of columns, covered with a tall glass shade, form a very interesting piece of bric-a-brac, especially if the bells have a sweet tone, but the contrivance is of no practical use except as embodied in Bonenberger's electroscope. Inventions of this kind might be multiplied indefinitely, but none of these devices can be called a perpetual motion, because they all depend, for their action, upon energy derived from external sources other than gravity. But the authors of these inventions are not to be classed with the regular perpetual motion mongers. The purposes for which these arrangements were invented were legitimate, and the contrivances answered fully the ends for which they were intended. The real perpetual motion seekers are men of a different stamp, and their schemes readily fall into one of these three classes. 
1. Absurdities. 2. Fallacies. 3. Frauds. The following is a description of the most characteristic machines and apparatus of which accounts have been published. End of section 6.